Hello, thank you for listening to History Voyager. My name is Benjamin Kitchings. Don't forget to give this podcast a like and subscribe in your favorite podcast catcher. The podcast has grown so much over the last, I guess, couple of weeks, the lifetime of the podcast. Anyway, I thought I would situate this podcast within the COVID-19 specials that I keep doing. You know, I thought I would talk more about some of the observations that I've noticed about the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, again, the I guess the original technical term for it was the coronavirus, but I think society is pretty much either calling it COVID or COVID-19, so I'm just going to call it COVID-19 from here on out. Okay, so I'm a trained historian, but I have a background in data management. Now, a few years ago, I had this job where I was trying to historicize photographs that this organization had taken over its lifetime. Now, what historicizing is, is the practice of situating historical objects within history itself. Okay, now, history does not just, like, history does not just happen. You, the historian, have to actively, you know, decide this is part of history. You have to interpolate objects and things like that within a historical narrative. And that's exactly what I was doing with this gig. So, what I noticed was that this town got photography pretty early, or at least this organization got photography pretty early, pretty soon after the Civil War, I would say. And the, photo- and the photographs that I had access to ran all the way from, I don't know, the 1860s all the way into maybe the 2000s or the early 2000s. And I noticed that my predecessor in the job had incorrectly historicized some, some photographs. And so I realized pretty fast that I needed to go back and resituate some things. And I, I looked at these photographs without dates on them per se, and I, I, land, I needed to come up with a framework to historicize, uh, tools to historicize. And one of the early things I did was look at the women's hairstyles because it was the easiest thing. It was the most convenient way to do. But in the early photographs, the women weren't really in the picture. It was all men, and they were very formal and, you know, stilted, if I can use the term stilted. But then, you know, the men, I guess, a little slouch creeped in, and then they started smiling more. It was almost like the smile was a, I guess, kind of like a social invention in a photograph. And then, you know, women started creeping in, and then you get with get African Americans in with mainly white people and you would notice that the African American folks would get closer into the center of the picture where the white men usually were and then you would start to see maybe an informalizing of the photographs and you would start to see and one of the hallmarks of that was the slouches would increase and the smiles which were seen as a formalization at this point, would would start to disappear. And what I noticed 
around, I would say, the 80s was the kids started getting less and less formal attire. And then in the 90s, there was a photograph that I saw. And I was like, aha, I've had that band. And I could see it. I could actually see the, the fight that this young man must have had with his parents to wear this Nirvana t-shirt to this formal occasion. And I could, if I looked close enough, I could see some of the older people were aghast at this young man looking, you know, all non-spiffy with his Nirvana t-shirt. And I noticed that actually the photograph was misdated. But I could tell it was misdated based on the hairstyle that some of the women wore. Now, what this is telling us is that not everybody experiences the same ages or the same eras in time the same way, right? That woman wearing the 80s hairstyle, okay, the big hair, right? She still thought that was trendy. And maybe it was in her circle. And the young kid wearing the Nirvana t-shirt, he was thinking about his peers wearing t-shirts. And he probably thought, I want to show the world that I'm a Nirvana fan. Or he probably thought, you know, what's the big deal? Why should I wear a formal attire just because my grandparents are wearing formal attires? Just because my parents are wearing formal attires? Now, why am I talking about this right now? I'm talking about this because there's a principle that I see playing out in society that I don't hear anything about. And that is that just because it's 2020 to me and 2020 to you, right, that can mean different things to different people. Like some people's eras never have to, they, they change slower, right? If they change at all, okay? Like I'm looking at, you know, being on Twitter, I look on Twitter and I see these protest movements and some people, you know, they look and they say, well, is this protest movement genuine? Should for the open up protest for those of you in the future? Again, I'm talking in digital stone now for those of you in the future. The open up movement is essentially kind of a counter protest to I think what a lot of people in some circles uh, see is an overreaction to a disease or to a virus that some people honestly don't even really think is real. But I'm looking at these photographs and I'm seeing people that all tend to be older and they all tend to be, you can kind of tell they're, they're from a rural stock. And what I find very interesting is this idea of let's bring firearms let's bring heavy artillery firearms but obviously you're you're wearing these things in a way that you know friends of mine that actually served in iraq and afghanistan have told me that nobody would actually if you were going into a combat zone nobody would really dress like that like you know would would make it so that you couldn't move around because ben when you're in a combat zone what you want to do is you want to move around because you think the enemy has something on you. So then I start to situate this military weaponry and this armor as more dress than anything else. And I wonder if I can get meta about this for a minute. 
I wonder if, honest to God, a lot of this is a reaction to something that these people don't understand. And I wonder if they're really reacting to this new information age. Because what if, what if, so the parallel here is always with the Spanish flu pandemic, right? Well, what if, if we're going along the Spanish flu pandemic timeline, what if it's not 1918 in the timeline? What if it's 1916 or 1915 in the timeline and we're in Kansas, right? So what if we're at the tip of the spear of this COVID-19 pandemic? And the difference is we now have the tools, okay? But the other difference is, and this is key, remember, I keep saying this, and this is the pullout lesson for me and it needs to be the pullout lesson for you. The disease is natural. The pandemic is always man-made. A pandemic is a bad reaction to a natural phenomenon, which is the disease. Okay? So, what if these people are reacting to the fact that we now have super amazing technology and they don't trust it or that they don't trust the powers that be? But also, I think we're, we're having, essentially, if I can be colloquial, a come-to-Jesus moment with our, with our economy. Because ever since the 90s and, and the 80s, really, ever since the 80s and 90s, we've sort of situated ourselves into a consumer-based economy. Well, suddenly, if the consumer-based economy is, is, on the, is on the downturn because of this pandemic, Suddenly, you know, we're, we're seeing, I guess, the rise of the real rise and, and, I guess, moment in the sun of the hegemony of, like, e-tailing, like um, what they used to call e-tailing or, I guess, buying things over the Internet. It's funny when the fancy word goes away because everybody does it, right? I mean, everybody buys things over the Internet now. And I think this is kind of a generational movement. And, I, you know, with the other people, the older generation sort of saying, wait a second, our downtowns are going to go away. Well, you know, if you came of age during the Great Recession anyway, which if you're under 30, you came of age during the Great Recession. So if you came of age during the Great Recession, you might not remember going to the mall as much. And you might not remember going to your downtown, your little local downtown, and eating supper there, or going out to eat much, you know. Or you might have become, you you might have become used to things like grocery delivery and food delivery anyway, and now this is going into the mainstream. So here we have almost like an ideological civil war happening, and it's a fascinating thing to watch from like a observational standpoint. And it's it's interesting, you know, as historians, you always have to remind yourself that social change doesn't happen in one direction. Like there isn't any any um guarantee, I guess you'd say, that things are going to keep going the way that you positively think they're going, right? You could always have a backlash. I mean, you think of the Dark Ages. That comes immediately to my mind as sort of a falling back of the Roman Empire. 
And it's trendy today in history circles to think of the Dark Ages as sort of better than the Roman Empire was for an awful lot of Europeans. But I wonder if they would have thought of that. I wonder if, honestly, if they would have thought of that. What do I mean when I say the Romans? What would the Romans have thought of the Dark Ages being better for Europeans? Well, obviously, the Roman Empire wasn't terrible for everybody. I mean, if you want to take as a leading indicator the fact that Eurasia had a whole lot more people on it, by by an order of millions and millions of people at the fall of the Roman Empire than it did even in the Middle Ages. I mean, so if you take health as a leading indicator and hygiene, obviously, like, for a lot of Europe, for a lot of Western Europe, it was much more hygienic in the Roman times than post-Roman times for a very long time. I mean... By, you know, the plague of this after the plague of Justinian, plagues did not return to Europe until the Black Death. Think about that. I mean, that's a leading indicator of, you know, the, the density level dropping off is a leading indicator for a poverty in Europe and Western Europe that the Romans just wouldn't have had to deal with. I mean, so obviously, I mean, there were possibly little enclaves. But those little enclaves were much more um, technologically backwards than their Roman forebears would have been. An analogy would be like, okay, right now we have high-speed internet. Well, imagine if the American empire, whatever that is, collapses, and then suddenly, like, you don't even have telephones like suddenly going far uh, very far appreciably out of your out of your town or out of your city becomes dangerous because why because travelers you know marauders are interacting with travelers in an unsafe way and under Pax Romana that didn't happen so it's trendy for people to look backwards and say, well, the Roman Empire was terrible for, for a lot of your average Europeans. But I don't know that the average Europeans would have necessarily thought that. Now, what am I talking about? Why do I keep talking about this with regard to COVID-19? Okay, here's why. I look at a lot of COVID-19 problems and I see stresses put on a society okay and you can obviously look and inequality has has greatly increased since the great recession which for the purposes of this discussion that I don't believe but for the purposes of this discussion we'll say started around 2008 with the 2008 crash all right so what I'm saying here is that you know these these people these older people they're they're wanting their world back of you could dip your toe or maybe not even your toe maybe your whole body into going into town and buying things and meanwhile you know the 
I guess a lot of your stay-at-home people. I mean, and I, I, I've said this in podcasts before, but I, I think it's actually true. I think the, I guess the Venn diagram of the folks that want to stay in to protect themselves and others from COVID-19. When you compare that with the Venn diagram of people that have high-speed internet access and people that are able to go on these Twitter feeds and Instagram and see these videos of people in hospitals and accounts that are just, I mean, they're heart-wrenching. These people that lose several members of their family in, you know, essentially in real close time spans, right? Of course that's terrifying. But how many of those older people know that, right? And some of this possibly is, you know, they're, they're thinking, well, you know, this, we have this freedom. We're, we're supposed to have in this country like a, what they call a, a looser society. So a society that's used to the civil freedom to do whatever we say we want to do. It's one of the reasons why political observers say that socialism doesn't really work in this country. Now, I don't know if I believe that, but let's just say that it is. Well, so obviously we're a society that doesn't want to be told what to do. I mean, you know, if you look at the, the history of the founding of this country, especially if you have a, an English name or a Scottish name or an Irish name, a whole lot of your ancestors, as soon as they got to that American port, essentially went out to the countryside as soon as they could to get as far away from any authorities that they could possibly see. And this was because in the old country of, of the, what we today call the British Isles, a whole lot of people had terrible relations with the king of, you know, the king of what we today call Great Britain. And frankly, it turns out, I really believe, a lot of these people just, you know, transposed that onto not just the government of this country, but the government of their state. And you, I mean, it goes all the way back to the Normans with some of these people. Um, but so, like, we in this country have traditionally always seen the expression of our society in our commercial spaces. And a lot of people of an age are seeing those commercial spaces, which are already decimated, become even more decimated. And, I mean, I haven't spoken to an intelligent adult since this whole thing started where anybody thinks, yeah, the restaurant industry is going to come back and it's going to be just fine. I don't know that it will. And that's just one thing. That's just one leading indicator. But, you know, but, you know, our generation, the, the, the late X and the millennials, we kind of came up in this kind of a, a, a subduing of the American economy. So to us, you know, this really, it's, it's bad, but it's, it's not as bad as, as some of these older people think it is. Like, we don't think it's as bad as some of these older people think. And, you know, they're really, I think, for the, the first the first time, maybe 
you know, this is going to be permanent. I mean, I heard a statistic. I don't remember the exact numbers, but all of a sudden, Amazon has become one of the major purveyors of food in this country, one of the major sellers of food. And they really weren't before this. And so a lot of policy, a lot of folks, even policy people, are, are realizing kind of for the first time, all right, well, this this could be the new reality that, that everybody orders up groceries on the Internet. Imagine what the world, what our landscape would look like without the anchor in most strip malls in this country. Imagine that. I mean, what would that look like? Right? And, and you want to think, well, okay, well, that wouldn't be too terrible. But, okay, what, you know, imagine a, a life without the cafe. Imagine a life without the corner restaurant. Imagine a life without Applebee's. And a lot of people in my generation who are basically urban people, now we, we find it trendy to, to poo-poo Applebee's and Chili's and places like that. But really, think about a world where there aren't nearly as many restaurants as there were three months ago, four months ago. What is that going to look like? And yeah, okay, some of this might honestly, on the part of the open up people, might honestly be a whole lot of, I guess, conservative reactionaries along the lines of, um, I guess, political gamesmanship or political teams or whatever. But think about that. Think about the reality of your average prosperous suburban town totally denuded of, of fast food restaurants. And not, I mean, you know, your Applebee's and your Chili's. And I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. I was talking to a buddy of mine, and we were about the same age. And he was talking to somebody that was younger than us. And they... You know, we were talking, you know, he was saying, well, I was trying to explain to this person about the difference between today and the time before the Great Recession, like the early 2000s and the 90s. And I couldn't really think of anything as far as that I could really hang my hat on in the moment. And I thought about it and I said, here's one. The fact that you used to have a whole lot of mid-tier restaurants. You know, not exactly fast food, but not exactly high-end. That you used to have a whole lot of those, and you don't anymore. The fact that people used to go to malls, even in the early 2000s, way more than they do today, prior to all this. I'm convinced that has everything to do with the Great Recession, and I imagine that whatever we're going to call this when we decide what to call it, our towns are going to look a whole lot different. And, you know, there's kind of this thought, I guess out of some people, mainly on the left, that the big corporations will come along and they'll buy up, um, you know, the our quaint little downtowns, which, frankly... Maybe I'm a little older than some people, but 
I can remember when the quaint little downtown didn't exist. I can remember when the quaint little downtown was a bunch of boarded up shops and we all went to the to the mall or whatever. And, th and then later, you know, as a policy decision from, I think it was from Obama, as a result of, you know, trying to reboot the economy from the Great Recession, that, you know, he put forth a lot of money to spruce up downtowns in little cities. And so that's why we, you have all that. Well, I can remember when the corporate chains weren't even in the downtowns and it was boarded up then. And that's what I'm afraid of. Frankly, that's what I'm afraid of. And, you know, I get it. I understand. I totally get it. This is a serious disease and we need to watch out for it. And we need to, you know, we need to flatten the curve, so to say, and and try to be careful and be safe and all this. But the thing is, I think that there are a lot of people that are really thinking about you could usher in a tremendous change that we're not even thinking about. We're not really thinking about this tremendous change that's going to happen. And you're just assuming that the chains come in and buy everything up. But you're not thinking, what if they don't? I mean, here's the, th here's the thought I keep having. If this keeps going on, this, you know, situation, if this keeps going on, people are going to graduate from opening cans to cooking. Right? When you start getting all these people cooking, what's that going to do for your, you know, your dining culture? I don't know. Um, here's another thought I keep having. You know, I, I see in my neighborhood, I see a lot of people living with other that are obviously moved in with other people. I mean, how do we know that people are going to want to go back to these apartments? I don't think they will, honestly. I, I think the longer this goes on, the less and less people are going to want to go back to these apartments because they're going to figure out how to get along with people. They're going to fit because let's face it, a lot of these people know. I mean, a lot of this, they know people. I mean, they know the people they're living with. So it's not like there's not some kind of common ground there anyway. But see, and then I go back to the recession and I remember. That prior to the recession, at least in Atlanta, you didn't have all the rental houses that you have today. What's a community going to look like with more rental houses? What's a community going to look like with rental houses and no restaurants? And, you know, so you're, you're losing your social places. Are you going to have more socialization happen online? More than you do today? And... You know, as a user of social media myself, um, by the way, you can find me at, at Ben's Charlie on Twitter. That's B-E-N-S Charlie, C-H-A-R-L-E-I-E -E on Twitter. See what I did there? But it's changed the way people talk to each other, the way people interact. I mean, everybody of an age notices that we just don't have the ways to express ourselves that we used to have.
because so much communication happens online. And I think there's a part of me that honestly thinks that's what some of these protesters are going on about. That yes, okay, this might possibly be paid for by some Republican operatives and maybe the Cokes, you know, and, and we can have that discussion too. But I also think that some of these people are, are legitimately freaking out. Here's another thing that I want to talk about that I think, again, is, is a reaction or a change that I see that the older people have that the younger people also don't really have. And that is that a lot of older people can remember stories of, like, pre-vaccine. And they, I guess, we have a way, we have a tendency to lionize the, the struggles of the people before us. And what if these people are just thinking, well, you can, you know, you can be a little sick for a while or several times and then get over it. Whereas, you know, vaccines are really this modern miracle. They're, it's literally Star Trek, to be honest with you. This is something that is science fiction of the first order. And we don't even really think about it like that. So, you know, we're not used to death the way some older people are. And especially older people who might live in the country or might be from the country, might be this rural stock. You know, they're, they might have heard of death from their, you know, parents more than we do. But, you know, today we have over 60,000 people today are diagnosed as COVID deaths. And so, at this point, that's way more than Vietnam. And yesterday, I had, that is the podcast before this, I had briefly touched on America's history with Vietnam. The Vietnam War was kind of a slow boil. Started off as a slow simmer and ended up into a rapid boil. This is different. This is the first pandemic that occurred in the day and age of social media. It's the first pandemic where you have, you can be, what, what is I, I honestly believe, this early in the pandemic. And you can actually see, like, what a lot of people or some people think, well, God, if this is the first wave and we're just at 60,000, what happens with the second wave? Because here's the thing with pandemics, there's always a second wave. Nature says there's a second wave. Whether or not there's a third wave is up to you, but there's going to be a second wave. And so people are thinking, you know, good Lord, what is this going to look like? And I really think there's a lot of people, I think we, we're creating this, society of ignorant technocrats. I think there's a whole lot of people that are very, very, you know, technically trained and skilled in their area that aren't, don't really have to think about areas they're not skilled in or they don't know about. So therefore, they're totally ignorant of it. Doesn't mean they're stupid about it. It means they're ignorant of it. 
And I think that's really what's going on here. That people aren't really thinking about the wider implications of a, of a thing like this. And also I think, you know, what, what really helps the open up people a lot is that this is a private death. This is not a death that's going to happen in public to an awful lot of people. Because in the day and age of social media, I tell you what, if this stuff happened in public, you, you know, if you started seeing people drop dead in public, literally standing in line and dropping dead, I guarantee you things would change. Now, I don't know if that's going to happen or not, but that would be one fast-acting virus. I tell you that right now. But the fact that it's happening in private and the fact that your family can't even be there with you, I think that ends up helping a lot of the open-up people in a lot of ways. And the other thing I think is that we've sort of turned this into a business interest sort of thing and Americans whether we want to talk about this or not and I'm going to talk about it right now Americans tend to have this we we want our businesses to succeed as a culture we want our businesses to succeed we we see jobs as the social safety net and that's different from a lot of countries a lot of country a lot of our peer nations don't necessarily see the jobs in that country as the social safety net but we do and i think you know it's like we've combined it's like some people have combined the two or like in in our mind and in, in the minds of a lot of people we've combined like having a job and the role of the social safety net and I think we're seeing that being tested out. And I also think that as long as you get, you know, 60,000 people versus 300 million people, I think if you can keep the deaths, I'm going to say under a million in a given span, if you can keep the deaths under a million in a given span, I think you're going to not see big changes. But once you start crossing, you know, bigger and bigger numbers, when we get out of this, we're going to see bigger and bigger changes. I mean, and not that we haven't had stuff like this before. I mean, you think about World War II. World War II was a, was a big stressor on society and, and the government as a whole. And the government, our government changed because of World War II, the way our government worked and everything changed about it. But that was because, you know, this massive global war. And But again, so, you know, change is going to come out of this the more people die. But anyway, um, thank you so much for listening. And um, it's been a big, big, Lots of people all of a sudden. Thank you. You can follow me at, at Ben's Charlie. That's B-E-N-S Charlie C-H-A-R-L-I-E on Twitter. 
I'm also going to look into creating a Facebook group. Um, so that'll be interesting. But you can also email me at uh, thehistoryvoyager at gmail.com if you want to chat about either the coronavirus or just history in general. Um, and again, my plans for the channel is I'm going to just do history topics. And also, this is kind of in the vein of the current events, but I'm going to do history and kind of ground current events in historical things. And I'm choosing this topic, obviously, because it's, frankly, I think this is the biggest uh, force of change in my, essentially, in my lifetime so far. I mean, anyway, thanks, and I'll see you around.